it's the last week before Jesus is to be crucified. This is where we are in the Gospels. It's still Tuesday. It's still Tuesday. The 12th of Nisan, uh, 30 AD, we get, we're assuming. Um, but if he's hanging out with his 12 disciples, and they know that he's getting ready to die, what would you ask Jesus? Like you got a shot to ask him any question you want. He's sitting there with you. What would you ask him? I'm asking you. <laughs> when are you going home? When are we going home? <laughs> Will you take me with you? Like literally you want to die with him or? When are you coming back? <laughs> I ask that a lot. Yeah, how come you have to die? Hmm. They, they they didn't know that at all. Yeah, what do you say, Brandon? <laughs> yep. What's next? What do I have to do? Yeah, when are we eating? <laughs> 30, Thursday night. It's Tuesday. We have to wait till Thursday to eat. Yeah, that's that's kind of what we're dealing with today. He has just finished. Well, he almost finished last Sunday when we were together talking to the public. It was his last opportunity to speak to the public. And he just man, he was brutal, brutal, brutal to the Pharisees. Brood of vipers, you guys are just pathetic. It's all about your religion and about you and everything else. And he, he kind of wraps up, uh, let me wrap up that discussion that he had with them. We're in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. But at the same time that he's, he's so upset with the Pharisees, he has a real passion and a real burden for his nation of Israel, the Jews. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He's talking about the Pharisees and how they, the, their blood is on their hands for all the prophets that they didn't believe and listen to. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. He said, you had a choice. You, you had a choice to receive me as the Messiah, but you, you passed that up. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is literally the last time he'll speak in public to the Pharisees. And it's the last time that they're going to see him, see him until they call him back. Until they call him back, which someday they will. There will be a remnant of Jews that call him back. And they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then 
I jumped to Luke chapter 20 because we're trying to do this in chronological order. Verse 45, it says, while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples. So you've got his disciples there, his disciples sitting right here on the front. And you've got all the people, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, even some of the Romans there. And he says, beware of the scribes. (laughs) Hey, you guys, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Now, he's said this several times throughout his earthly ministry here. But really, it's his final statement to them. they devour widows' households? Yeah, you know what they would do? Obviously, when uh, the husband would die, left the, every, all their belongings to their wife, their widow, and the Pharisees would come in and they would pilfer. Because they always believed, the more that I have, the more wealth that I have, the more things that I have, it explains and really increases my status as a believer in heaven. It was all based upon stuff and what they had. So they had no problem stealing from the widows just so they could make themselves bigger and better. And Jesus literally calls them out. And then turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, sitting across from the temple treasury, this is kind of in the same context right here, talking about them pilfering. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. And summoning his disciples, hey guys, come here. He said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. All these rich people were coming by and putting in the temple treasury. But she put two tiny coins in and she put in more than any of them. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, this is not a message about tithing. This is just Jesus pointing out something that he noticed. And it's not a passage of scripture about how you have to give everything. Just like she gave all that she had. This is about sharing what you have, even if it is very little. Which is great in the context of this room right here. Because I see it all the time. I see the sharing in this room right here. doesn't matter what level of income is in this room. I've seen all levels of income share in here. 
And that's really what Jesus is saying. It's really, the, the whole concept here is figuring out what you're content with. What are you content with? If you can become content with what you have, then it becomes easier to share. It becomes easier. And then all of a sudden there is a community that is developed as you share. And this is exactly what this lady did. She wasn't worried about what she was going to eat that night. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Jesus probably took care of her that night. That's the way it works, right? I truly believe that. I believe you give what you have. It's the Lord's anyway. He's going to take care of you. I haven't missed too many meals in my life. And now we get to this section, which is uh, it's kind of difficult. He's, he's finished with the public crowd, and now he's moving away with his disciples. And this is where the questions come. He begins to ask, ask the questions. Uh, it says in Matthew 24, we're going to hit this verse, first few verses in Matthew 24, and then we're going to go to Luke 21. But these all parallel. Matthew 24, Luke 21, and I believe Mark 13, all, all parallel. So uh, we'll start in Matthew 24 and jump to Luke. It says, as Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called attention to its building. So literally they're at the temple mount. They said that they were in the temple treasury in the last passage that we read. But they've probably left, either walked out the eastern gate or maybe the southern gate. And they turned around and looked. The disciples just turned around and looked at the whole temple thing. Because uh, here we go. We're going to do a little church history, church history here today. But do you know how many temples there actually were? Anybody? I hear two and three, two and three. I'll go with two and a refurbished. And here's what happened is we all know who built the first temple. Solomon built the first temple. And then uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came along in 586 B.C. and uh, destroyed the temple. Absolutely destroyed it. And then uh, the Persians beat the, the Babylonians in history. You go back to your history books and you can see this. And they pleaded with the Persians to let them go back and rebuild the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra chapter 6, we see that uh, a remnant of the Jews came back and rebuilt the temple. And it was finished 70 years later after the Babylonians had destroyed that temple. So in 516 B.C., this temple was restored by a group of Jews. Zerubbabel was one of those, all right? And so now that temple lasted until Herod came about. And Herod, he was one of the Romans' cronies, but he was the king of Judea. 
he was the king over Israel, but he was really underneath the empire of the Romans. And he loved to build things. He had plenty of resources because he pilfered it from all the people. But he decided to refurbish this temple that was built in 516 B.C. And he started that. He started that uh, in 30, 30 B.C. 30 B.C. he started this. And the temple wasn't finished, refurbished until the uh, 64 A.D. So it's taken that long for Herod to like rebuild this temple. And so while Jesus is doing his earthly ministry there, construction is going on the temple the whole time. Herod is rebuilding, refurbishing, expanding this whole thing and just making it a, a masterpiece. If Jesus died in 30 AD and the temple wasn't finished till 64 AD, it happened during Jesus' whole life, this reconstruction. And so the disciples walk out and they turn around and look and they're going, man, this is massive. Look at these stones. It says, <clears throat> if, you, if you look at Mark 13, one, it actually says, what massive stones, one of the disciples said. It says, he replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you. Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. He's watched this whole thing be constructed his whole life, and he says to his disciples, this whole thing is getting ready to be picked apart. Everything that the Jews worked on back in 520 to 516, everything that Herod's done all these years, not one stone is going to be standing pretty crazy he says in verse three while he was sitting on the mount of olives okay so now he has literally walked out of the eastern gate or the southern gate he's walked he's walked across the kidron valley which is now a highway and he's walked up to the mount of olives and you remember if i said if you look over the mount of olives there's the little town of bethany which is where jesus has been staying through the night probably in mary's house mary and martha's house and he's sitting there with the disciples. Go back to Mark 13, 4, and it tells you exactly what three disciples it was that asked the questions. It says, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, four disciples. It says, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of your age? They literally just asked Jesus three questions in one sentence. It says, tell us when these things will happen. When are you coming back? And what is the sign of your coming? Will there be some kind of sign? Will we be able to see something? And what is the end of this age? Now, M Matthew and Mark answer two of these questions, but Luke actually answers all three and since Luke does it chronologically, Luke has said, I want to do things chronologically, and that's how his book is written. I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 21, and we'll read these three questions from there. <clears throat> Verse 7 of Luke 21 says, 
Teacher, they asked him, so when all these things happen, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus actually answers the third question first. The third question in Matthew, he answers first. We'll probably get through the, this question and maybe the first question today. Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. How many times have you heard that in your lifetime? Right? When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place. Jesus just said wars will take place and it's necessary for these things to take place. But the end won't come right away. And then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, uh, my friend Bob Warren had another friend named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote a book called The Footsteps of the Messiah. And here's what Arnold Fruchtenbaum said about that verse right there. In Christ's day... The expression nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom was a Jewish idiom of world war that was to take place before the coming of the Messiah. The Breshit Ragah states, if you shall see kingdoms rise up against one another in turn, then give heed and note the footsteps of the coming Messiah. The Zohar Zadash states, at that time, war shall be stirred up in the world. Nation shall be against nation and city against city. Much distress shall be renewed against the enemies of Israel. So now, what Jesus has just said is a Jewish idiom that says, nations will rise up against nations and there will be a world war that takes place. You actually look at Matthew 24, 7 and 8. I'll throw it up there on the screen. It says, For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is the parallel passage in Matthew. It says, There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now watch this, verse 8. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Have we experienced a world war? Huh? Two of them. The first one began in what year? 1914. The second world war took place in what years? 19, all you trivia crack people, 1941 through 45. It was basically a continuation of World One, almost. Really is what it was. So we have experienced this world wars that started back in 1914. And then out of World War II, which really you understand was when Hitler started killing the Jews, the Holocaust, started in Poland, worked his way through Europe pretty much, that three years after the war ended in 1945, that in 1948, as a result of that, Israel became a state. 
the Jews were allowed to go back into Israel. That is prophecy. Because we know that the Israels have to be that the Jews have to be in Israel for the end to come. He says, These are the labor pains, these are the labor pains for what's coming at the end. There's gonna be world wars that happen. Now I'm not sitting up here trying to scare you, I'm just sitting here reading what's happening. This is a part of history. You've seen it. And it says there will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. Uh, the, the Jehovah Witness believe that since 1914 there's been a, a, an incredible increase of earthquakes. I don't know if that's true or not. I just know we have more ways of recording and measuring earthquakes than we did before 1914. There were some pretty horrific earthquakes that happened over a million people were killed in like 1200 A.D. But <laughs> you look at all the earthquakes that's happened here in the United States, it's kind of crazy. I grew up in Oklahoma. I never once experienced an earthquake. They have earthquakes almost like every week now down there in Oklahoma. I get it that it was probably caused by man, but still an earthquake. Verse 12, again, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you what's going on. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. He's sitting there talking to his disciples, going, guys, it's going to get really, really bad for you. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. In the midst, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the crisis, in the midst of you guys being scared to death, you're going to have opportunity to tell the truth. You're going to have opportunity to proclaim that I really am the Messiah. He says, therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I just sat back there next to Kurt and said, I'm kind of nervous about going up there today. And he's like, the Lord will speak through you. This is just what Jesus said. He's like, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. I'll take care of you. You're going to be able to give a defense because I'm going to give it to you. Don't worry about it. I got you. He says, you'll even be betrayed by your parents. What? Your brothers, your relatives, and your friends, I truly believe that the evil one will use your family against you, even to this day. They will kill some of you you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair on, of your head will be lost. In other words, your salvation is secure. You may perish in your earth suits, but trust me, you're good. You're safe. You're going to live forever. You will be persecuted in this fallen world you will have opportunity to proclaim the gospel. 
but you're good. And he says in verse 19, by your endurance, gain your lives. In other words, just be persistent. Just keep going and watch how many lives will come to know Jesus as the Messiah. Because you endured. Lives will be gained. And then he gets into this whole destruction of Jerusalem. We get to verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its destruction has come near. Let me, let me go back and paint this historical picture for you. We've done a lot of history here today, but th- this is the cool part is because Jesus has said all these things and we have history to back it up. We, it just makes Jesus uh, more real to me. Not that I need history to back up uh, my faith, but this is incredible. So, Jesus was crucified in 30 AD. Herod completed the temple in 64 AD. And about that time, a small group of Jews began to revolt. Revolt against the Roman Empire. They began to get bigger and bigger, and they decided to, like, take on the Romans. And at this point, uh, the person in charge of the Romans at that time was Cestius Gallus. And he comes in, and he decides that he's going to uh, squash this Jewish revolt. Now, watch this picture. I'll show you the map here real quick. Of uh, This is Israel. And even the West Bank is part of Israel, kind of not, sort of. That's Palestinian territory, but the yellow part there is Israel. Uh, You'll see Jerusalem kind of like notches in right there at the West Bank because uh, it is under Israeli control, although the Temple Mount is under Palestinian control. This is all the way they divided up back in 1948. And then at the very top, right up there, you'll see uh, Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. And then that little body of water right there where it says Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River is that red line that comes down. And the big body of water is the Dead Sea. And at the bottom of the Dead Sea, there's an area called the Masada, which we'll talk about here in a second. But look where Syria is. Syria is right there, and uh, Sestia Gallus was the governor of Syria. And he's the one that built an army and says, we're going to come in and we're going to squash this Jewish revolt in Jerusalem. So in 64 AD, he brings a team down to Jerusalem, and he begins to really control the Jews. And at one point, he gets his armies where he totally surrounds the city of Jerusalem and ready to take out this Jewish revolt. And they don't know why, but all of a sudden he turned back and went away. They think that he may have run out of resources. Just at the moment that he's ready to like capture this whole thing, it stops. So then the next Roman leader comes in. 
The next Roman leader comes in, and history will tell you that that was Vespasian. Vespasian comes in around 67 AD, and he has a son named Titus. Titus eventually takes over, and in, in 68 AD, Titus is leading this Roman surge against the Jewish revolters. And guess what happens? You know this. In 70 AD, Titus completely takes out the temple and 1.1 million Jews. That's the history. That's the history. Watch what Jesus says. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the country must not enter it because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Jesus pretty much prophesied what was going to happen 40 years later. And because there were uh, Hebrew Christians... Jewish people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew what Jesus said. Now watch this. When Cestus Galus came in and he surrounded Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden he just took off for some reason, those Hebrew Christians split town. Why? Because they remember what Jesus said back in Luke 21. They got out. Josephus, which is a historian, will tell you all this, that all those Hebrew Christians booked it they got out they went down to the southern part of israel down where masada was at the dead sea and they hid out and guess what none of them died this is if you go back to the book of hebrews this is what hebrews is all about those jews are telling those those hebrew christians hey you need to come back and you need to like do your worship and everything else and they're like no 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 that whole temple thing is over because Jesus was the sacrifice. No, no, no. You need to come and do your annual atonement of sins. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, is this group of Christians that took off and went down. And, sa- and Josephus says, not a single one of them perished in that revolt. Jesus says, woe to pregnant women, nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, once again, the Jews are going to be dispersed all over the world. They'll They'll be killed and moved out of Israel. And guess what? It happened exactly like that. I'll read to you real quick from the book of Josephus. Not the Bible. A historian. And this is what he says. Sit with me for a second. And let me paint this picture. Of the history book. Book 6. Chapter 4. Now it is true that on this day the Jews were so weary and under such consternation that they refrained from any attacks. But on the next day they gathered their whole force together and ran upon those that guarded the outward court of the temple very boldly through the east gate. And this about the second hour of the day. 
These guards received their attack with great bravery. And by covering themselves with their shields before, as if it were a wall, they drew the squadron close together. Yet was it evident that they could not abide there very long, but would be overborne by the multitude of those that that sallied out upon them, and by the heat of their passion. However, Caesar, seeing from the tower of Antonio that his squadron was likely to give away, he sent some chosen horsemen to support them. Hereupon the Jews found themselves not able to sustain their onset and upon the slaughter of those in the forefront. Many of the rest were put to flight. But as the Romans were going off, the Jews turned upon them and fought them. As those Romans came back upon them, they retreated again until about the fifth hour of the day, they were overborne and shut themselves up in the inner court of the temple. Chapter 5. So Titus retired into the tower of Atonia and resolved to storm the temple the next day, early in the morning with his whole army and to camp around the holy house. But as for that house, God had for certain long ago doomed it to be to the fire. And now that fatal day was come. According to the revolution of ages, it was the tenth day of the month of Laos, upon which it was formerly burnt by the king of Babylon. Although these flames took their rise from the Jewish, the Jews themselves and were occasioned by them, for upon Titus's retiring, the seditious lay still for a little while, then attacked the Romans again, and those that guarded the holy house fought with those that quenched the fire that was burning the inner court of the temple. But these Romans put the Jews to flight and proceeded as far as the holy house itself, at which time one of the soldiers, without staying for any orders and without any concern or dread upon him, at so great an undertaking and being hurried by a certain divine fury, snatched somewhat out of the materials that were on fire and being lifted up by another soldier, he set fire to a golden window through which there was a passage to the rooms that were around in the holy house, the north side of it. As the flames went upward, the Jews made a great clamor, such as so mighty an affliction required and ran together to prevent it. And now they spared not their lives any longer nor suffered anything to restrain their force since the holy house was perishing. For whose sake it was that they kept such a guard about it. Chapter 6. And now a certain person came running to Titus, and he told him of this fire. And he was resting himself in his tent after the last battle, whereupon he rose up in great haste. And as he was, he ran to the holy house in order to have a stop put to the fire. Titus didn't want the temple to be destroyed. He knew the value of that temple. After him followed all his commanders, and then after him followed the several legions in great astonishment. So there was a great clamor and, and tumult raised as the natural upon the disorderly motion of so great an army. Then did Caesar, both by calling to the soldiers that were fighting with a loud voice and by giving a signal to them with his right hand, order them to quench the fire. They didn't want to destroy the temple, but the Jews were revolting so bad they were making the Roman soldiers mad, and the Romans were just destroying it. But the leadership didn't want it destroyed. But they did not hear what he said, though he spoke, spake so loud, having their ears already dimmed by a greater noise another way. Hmm. Nor did they attend to the signal he made with his hand, neither. As still some of them were distracted with fighting and others with passion. But as for the legions that came running thither, neither any persuasions nor any threatenings could restrain their, their violence. 
but each one's own passion was his commander at this time. And as they were crowding into the temple together, many of them were trampled on by one another, while a great number fell among the ruins of the cloisters, which were still hot and smoking, and were destroyed in the same miserable way with those whom they had conquered. And when they were come near the holy house, they made as if they did not uh, so much as Caesar's orders to the contrary. But they encouraged those that were there to set it on fire. As for the seditious, they were too great distress already to afford their assistance towards quenching the fire. They were everywhere slain and everywhere beaten as far as great of the people that were weak and without arms and had their throats cut wherever they were caught. Now round about the altar lay dead bodies heaped upon one another at the steps going up to it ran a great quantity of their blood, whither also the dead bodies that were slain above fell down. And now Caesar was no way able to restrain the enthusiastic fury of the soldiers, and the fire proceeded on more and more. He went into the holy place of the temple with his commanders and saw it with what was in it. And he found to be far superior to what the relations of foreigners contained, and not inferior to what ourselves boasted of and believed about. But as the flame had not yet reached its inward parts, but still consuming the rooms that were about the holy house, and Titus supposing what the fact was that the house itself might yet he saved, he came in haste and endeavored to persuade the soldiers to quench the fire, and gave to the centurion one of these spearmen that were about him to beat the soldiers with refractory with their slaves and to restrain them. Yet their passion was too hard for the guards they had for Caesar, and the dread they had for him forbade him, as they were hatred of the Jews and a certain venom and inclination to the fight too hard for them also. Moreover, the hope of plunder induced many to go on, as having this opinion that all the places within money, and as seeing that all around it was made of gold, and besides, one of those that went into the place prevented Caesar, he ran so hastily out to restrain the soldiers and threw the fire up against the hinges of the gate in the dark, whereby the flame burst out within the holy house itself immediately. When the commanders retired and Caesar with them, and with nobody any, any longer forbade those that were without to set fire to it, and thus was the holy house burnt down without Caesar's affirmation. That's history. That's not the Bible. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. Guess what? It happened. And we have a clear picture of how it happened. You sit up here and say the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and 1.1 million Jews died. You go, oh yeah, but this paints a picture of how it really happened. Those Jews that found themselves down at Masada. They hit out. They put up a great fight. In two weeks, I'm going to be standing there at Masada. And I'm going to like be able to read Hebrews to our group of people. And it's going to be a pretty cool thing, knowing that the Lord protected them by his prophecy. I tell you, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. Jesus is real. Father, uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been one of Jesus' 12. Um, I know they were scared. 
I know that all these things that Jesus sat there and told them, they didn't even understand. And sometimes I don't even understand it standing here today. But I pray that you would unpack and unfold this with our people. I pray that they uh, learn more about you and know you and that you give them faith. That you give them faith to know that there ain't a single hair on their head will be harmed in eternity. So Lord, um, today we sit here uh, just as a group growing in your word. And we thank you for that. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.